You're listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Outfluencer, Dr. Wayne Purnell. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Today, I have a really special guest. I met this woman in New York City on a trip a few months ago, and we had a conversation uh, that just struck me. Um, my Some of you know that my father passed away last March, and um, it's been an interesting thing to, to get through and get past and get over and hang on to and all that stuff that goes with it. Uh, Felicia barlow Clark is a sacred life celebrant and funeral disruptor. And when we got to talking, I wanted to know more. Um, she's also an award-winning producer and author. She has... Uh, really focused. She's niched her company to um, to provide an alternative to funeral homes. Um, and that allows for bereavement in a very, very intentional way. She's an advocate for end of life education. And she has podcasts and workbooks and she does consulting to cover all of this. Uh, there's a whole lot more. She's uh, received awards. She's received a, uh, special education. Um, and I would like to invite Felicia, Felicia Barlow Clark, to tell us more. Thank you for being on One Sharp Sword, Felicia. Thank you so much for the invitation. I know like when we did meet, it was kind of odd, like when you were telling me what you did, that there was a fit, but there is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I do breakthrough success coaching and you're like, well, I help people figure <laughs> out what happens besides the traditional funeral stuff. So yeah. it was a great conversation because it, it allowed me to just explore like I, I explore the world in a, from a space of curiosity. And whenever there's something that's slightly against the norm that we're all used to, I'm drawn to it. I'm like, we are so used to doing things a certain way, like grieving, like, uh, going through funeral services in a very particular way. And you're like, well, I do things or I see things a little differently around that. Yes. And, and you talked about the dash, like, you know, from, from birth to death, there's this other thing. And, and so I, first, what I'd love to do is to talk about what it is, like, what is this unique perspective you have? And then the second thing I'd love to do is to back it up and have you tell us how you got there. So what is this unique perspective on uh, sacred life celebration and how it disrupts kind of the, the typical funerals and mourning? Well, the, I would say that it's all kind of connected, like how I got into it and, and what I do, because my, my sister and my stepfather passed away about within a year and a half of each other. And when we, we used the same funeral home, when we went there, 
we were handed the same templates for both of them. And it was just eye-opening to me as an event planner, event producer, how template that was. Because here was my stepfather, who was 92 years old, had been a trailblazing civil rights person in Washington, D.C., worked in hospitality, you know, with every notable person you could think of at the time. And then there was my sister, who was the mother of four, hysterical, probably the, well, actually not probably, but the funniest person I've ever known, life of the party, all that. And I'm like, and they're handing me the same templates. I'm like, these are not the same people. These, you know, the, the prayers that they give you, which did not fit, you know, the, do you want the beach scene? Do you want the outdoor scene? Whatever, like the beach perfectly fit my stepfather. None of it fit my sister. So I at least knew the questions to ask being an event person. Nobody else around the table would know that. And everybody's grieving at the time. So I was able to ask the funeral director, like, well, can we use my sister's poetry on that prayer card instead of that? And she's like, oh, let me think about that. You know, oh, okay. I don't see why not. So it was even, I think, eye-opening to the funeral director, how much you could curtail things just so much that it tells that person's story versus I almost want to say like the grief story that we all live in, in a funeral home. And I, with my sisters, you know, I put up all the funny pictures of her. Some people were like, why'd you put that picture in there? I'm like, cause that's who she was. And at the end of her service, I, I had music playing throughout. I turned the funeral director's into live event producers that day, telling them when to press play and what songs to play through the service. And at the end of it, there was a song that her, her children wanted, which had absolutely nothing to do with anything other than it was special to them and actually to me too, because we used to joke about it, it was Mr. Boombastic and the Mr. Bean dancing to, to it, if you've ever seen the movie. And I, I could just like intuitively feel my sister telling me the day before the service, that's great that you're playing that song, but you all need to get up and dance. So I made a pact with my family that we all got up and danced. And it was just, it was such a turn from this sad service at the end to everybody dancing because those that really understood my sister and got what we were doing all got up and joined us. And you could almost see like the light bulbs going off in their heads as they were like, (gasps) Like, like this moment of joy, this moment of actually celebrating who she was. So that's what I offer now in my services is something that is so personal to that person that is the person who passed. Whereas most funerals actually focus on grief and the people that are left behind, mm-hmm. I find. So it's, it really is a celebration and it's very personalized, which yes. is very cool. So, um, do you find that that's pervasive? Like, does, does every funeral home tend to have these templates and, you know, what, what's been your experience kind of nationally or, or was it that, wow, this experience, this one experience in seeing what happened with your sister and what happened with your, with, uh, your stepfather, was that right? Yeah. Yeah. That. But it's like, okay, here's this funeral home that doesn't get it. I'm going to personalize it. Did you, did you then do research across the country or you, 
uh, you just were like, you know what, here's the possibility and I'm creating workbooks that anybody can use. Well, it's kind of twofold. Like, sadly, I've had a lot of loss in my life. So I've been to a lot of funerals at different funeral homes. And I just noticed this pervasive template wrote way that they go about it. I mean, I would say at least here, I'm in the Maryland, D.C. area. So I'm like, at least here in this area. And I don't think it's anything out of the norm for the rest of the country. And then I did a lot of research during the pandemic because events were shut down. And technically what I do is events. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of research and discovered the death positive movement and discovered how many options are out there that nobody, well, not nobody, but I would say the general consuming public has not heard about because funeral homes don't share them. They don't want you to know that you can do a home funeral. You know, they don't want you to know that, I mean, even green burials, that that's a big thing because not that many um, places are available yet. So you might have to go somewhere, you know, outside of your region if you really want to do a green, green funeral. Yeah. Uh, but there are so Talk many a little things bit about that because uh, my sister actually had a green funeral. And um, it's very interesting. So death is not a subject that most people will launch into. And and looking at options is not something that most people will do as they're living their day-to-day lives. And so Mm -hmm. when the time comes that we have to face this for a relative that's passed, there are a lot of decisions that need to be made very fast. So the, one of the reasons I wanted you here was to talk about, it doesn't have to be urgent. It doesn't have to be pressured. It can actually be relaxed. And the whole idea of a celebration of life is that it's a celebration of life. So can you talk about like you have this knowledge Mm-hmm. that other people don't have. Can you talk about the death positive movement? You kind of, you threw that out there like, oh, there's this <laughs> movement. So yeah. it's it's not something that most people know about. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what did you discover and what are the options? And how do you make, how do you really, like someone who's got an older parent or an older grandparent what can they be doing or thinking about now knowing that look someone who's in their 90s is is they're gonna have a (laughs) an eventuality right so uh it's the one certainty so talk a little bit about that the death positive movement how'd you discover it and and for you what does that mean and how did you make that special it is a movement that was started, uh, the term was started by a funeral director out in California who has a huge YouTube uh, media presence. Um, she, she's a little quirky, almost like a Wednesday Adams type, and she does a lot of eye-opening videos about death. Um, Caitlin Dowdy is her name, and she's written a lot of books. And she was the one that coined the phrase when she saw something on Twitter years ago about the sex-positive movement. And she was like, well, you know, if we're able to talk about sex, why are we not able to talk about death? And so she coined this phrase, you know, the death positive movement. So that's where that comes from. And it is one of those things like the way I discovered so much about it was 
one thing just led to another. I mean, I literally went down a rabbit hole last year discovering, oh, there's open funeral pyre in Colorado, you know, for people that like Indian, the Indians and the Hindus, that might be something they want to do here in the United States. Or like I said, the green burials are now one of the big things that's just kind of come out in the last few months is the um, basically composting your body. They do that. I believe it's in Washington state and there's another state that's trying to get that done too. But it, I mean, it's just like one thing leads to another leads to another of how much there is out there. And there are people that work in the end of life industry um, that are trying to get this message out. But the thing that I noticed about them is they're talking to each other. You've got all these people within the field talking to each other and nobody seems, you know, so willing to go out and really talk to the general media or do things like this, you know, podcasts. So that's kind of where I stepped in. I'm like, death is not a, a bad thing. It's a natural part of life. And the United States is the only one that predominantly has this sort of scary relationship, you know, calls it morbid. Um Versus like, I look at it and I'm like, it's not morbid, it's sacred. It's a sacred part of life. It's no different than birth. It's just the opposite end of it. So That's great. Yeah. Um, I was, I was actually going to ask you like, what are kind of the foundational statements you'd make about what you do? And um, death is a normal part of life. It's not morbid, morbid, it's sacred. And uh, I love both of those that, that if we say, uh, if, how do we approach it, right? How do we approach death? That it's a normal part of life. It's part of what happens. We don't know for sure what happens after, but we do know that, uh, the body wears out. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's predictable for the most part. Yes. So, yes. For the most sure. part. There are certainly there are accidents, certainly there's disease and, you know, all, all those things that are sudden, but mostly it's predictable and it's a normal part of life. Mm -hmm. How do we get the conversation going? What kinds of conversations should we have? Um, you know, that the, you were saying that folks in the folks in the death and dying business seem to be talking to themselves in that industry. Um, how do we create a conversation just like a dinner time conversation? Is it something we, we talk about over the dinner table? I, well, I would say I do. And um, ironically enough, my younger sister is a former funeral director. So you know, I'd have to say she's the one that really started the conversation in our family. It was one side of the family and talking about death and kind of normalizing it within our family. And then just having so many experiences of it, you know, it does become a part of the conversation. And um, sadly, my sister, she didn't pass away unexpectedly but she passed away suddenly and so that is the thing that really shifted my thinking because i tried you know for 25 years to save her and she was an alcoholic so um after she passed away it was just a complete shift in in me and i hate to say it was almost like having a burden lifted off my shoulders i mean it sounds kind of callous but i knew she was where she wanted to be she had told me since she was a teenager that she was not going to live past a certain age. So um, she didn't want help. 
Oh, that, so that that really shifted my perception about death too. Is uh, you know just having that experience of somebody that did not want to be here anymore. And, you know, I have my whole feelings about suicide as well, because that's really what alcoholism is in the way she did is slow suicide. It's um, horrible to watch. But then, you know, on the other side of it, it just bonded my family in a different way. And we were able to talk about, you know, more. I mean, we're kind of going into the mental health conversation here, which is a whole other animal to tackle. It is. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote my workbooks after discovering all of this stuff in the death positive movement. So a lot of the information is compiled into two books so that people can sit down and not have to go down the rabbit hole like I did and can see a lot of the things that are out there. And that does help start the conversation because planning is so important. And that is the one thing I would say everybody in the end of life industries emphasizes and is trying to really get that message out is plan. We plan everything else. We've got insurance for everything else. And we tend to just leave the details of our death and our funeral or celebration of life up to somebody else. It, it becomes a part of, I don't need to handle that. And really we should. You're listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Dr. Wayne Purnell. Sometimes relationships need a boost. Go to www.relationshiprecharge.com for a free seven tip guide to put some extra life back in your life. That's relationshiprecharge.com for your free seven tip guide. Relationshiprecharge.com. And now back to One Sharp Sword cutting through to what matters most with Dr. Wayne Purnell. So Felicia, talk a little bit about, you know, if not even thinking about that as part of our, our routine and we're planning our next vacation, um, we might be planning our trust. We might be planning, you know, financial security. We might be planning uh, for the next big purchase we have. How do we plan for, like, what are some of the steps when you talk about planning? What should we know? What should we be thinking about? Um, you know, planning for, for end of life as a, as a natural progression of life. How do we plan for that? Like, walk us through some of the initial thoughts or questions that we should be asking ourselves. I, the first thing I think is important is to have a will or a trust of the legal paperwork. I prefer the, the revocable trust versus a will. A will is a part of the revocable trust, but that helps simplify so many things. Like when it comes to probate and taxes and who's getting what, um, as far as beneficiaries, my husband and I set one up long before I ever even got into this because it just seemed to be the simpler way to tackle this. And people have a real um, myth thinking when they think that they have to have tons of assets and be wealthy in order to have a trust. That's not true. I mean, you do have to have certain assets to fund it. But um, uh, yeah, 
anybody can have a revocable trust. So I would start there with the legal aspect of it, the will. And then let, within- let me pause. Let me pause for a second. Okay. My experience uh, after my father passed was, you know how the movies are, the lawyer gathers all the family around and reads and then says, and you get this and you get this and you get this and everybody leaves and they're all either happy or unhappy or whatever, knowing they've got this. It doesn't work that way at all. Um, it's, you know, there has to be an accounting, there has to be uh, certain taxes that are set aside, there has to be all this stuff. And the good news about a trust is that the trust uh, actually provides for that to happen. Uh, and, and it identifies who gets what as part of it. Um, and it takes a while. It takes a while. It's not like gather round. He's left you this. It's not that at all. And so, um, just to know that a trust does help incredibly without a trust, you are going through probate. There's, uh, uh, state stuff that you need to do. And that could take up to three years, if not more. So, um, having a document that is a, a living trust or revocable trust, um, that's a very good first step. Yeah. I have available on my website, a free, um, downloadable executor checklist because there is so much to think about that people are not aware of. And, and, and you have to think of things from if you are a veteran from a military funeral to if you own a pet to <laughs> the taxes, closing out the estate, everything. And that's all in this checklist I have because it is, it's so thorough. And my brother stood as executor for my sisters and my mother of course has been executor for my stepfather. So we all sat down and reviewed it. So thought of absolutely everything we could think of to put on this executor checklist. So, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, what, why don't you just say what website it is now and we'll talk about it again at the end. Oh, okay. It's celebrating the dash.com. Cause that that's what I'm all about, which, you know, people look at me like, Oh, you're the lady that focuses on grief and death. I'm like, no, I'm actually the lady that focuses on life and living, <laughs> living yeah, yeah. life to its fullest versus, you know, kind of being in our head and, you know, go bungee jump if you want to bungee jump. <laughs> right. So celebrating the dash, mm -hmm. that is the dash between born and death date, right? Born on and died on. Your living it, years. <laughs> the hyphen, right? The dash. Yep. Uh, celebrating the dash.com. Easy enough to remember. And the executor checklist. All right. So I interrupted you on purpose. Uh, when you were talking about the trust as being one of the first things, what what are a few of the next things that people should be thinking about and or taking action on? They should actually think of how they want to dispose of their body. That's, I mean, it seems like this simple thing, like, well, I'll just call the funeral home and we'll be buried. I'm like, no, there's cremation. Now we know there's uh, compost. There's turning yourself into stones. That's something that's fairly new as well. Um, there's the open funeral pyre. Then there's the home funeral, which that requires so much planning. And for people that you know think that all funerals are very expensive too, and on average in the United States, they are about $10,000, I'd say, if you use a traditional funeral home, but they don't have to be. I'd say one of the smartest things I learned from interviewing the executive director of the Funeral Consumers Alliance is that 
people should budget first. Don't just go into a funeral home and let them dictate it. Go in and say, this is how much I have to spend because then they can work with you on, okay, well, we could cremate and, and uh, you know, have something simple. You could do something in a park. Like I said, there's so many options out there, but people tend to think they must use a funeral home. And in, I think it's every state you don't have to use a funeral home. There's nine states that you do have to use a funeral director. So like I said, there's so much out there that I, I could be sitting here for hours. Sure. And one of the things you didn't mention was um, disposing of the body. It's is yeah. you could donate it. Yes. You yes. That's in my book too. Yeah. Right. It could go to science. Um, yes. There are schools that need that need cadavers. Yes. There are hospitals that need organs. Um, and, and it's not hospitals. It's the people in the hospitals that need organs. And so yeah. that's all part of it before the, before the body is uh, either refrigerated and then uh, entombed or before the body is uh, embalmed, right? It's like, mm-hmm. and the body is the body, right? So um, that's what the other we- thing is perspective, right? You have to have yeah. a perspective that that your body isn't really that useful after the living part of it is gone. Right. So. And that, and, and isn't that kind of sad because it really can be to other people like donating organs, you know, exactly. And be very useful. Very. That was one of the things I discovered too, when I did all this research and I didn't know is that when you donate your body to science, a lot of times after they are done with it, done with what they need it for, they will cremate it and send you the remains back. So you can still do a celebration yes. of life later on. It's about a year. That's uh, I learned that actually from <laughs> my my daughter has gone through uh, uh, human physiology. Right. So and, oh. and in her studies, she had a she was she uh, got to participate in a cadaver lab and uh, recognize that, yeah, bodies come and then they are useful for students. And then they are uh, with dignity, they are packed back up and they are sent off and then they are returned. Uh, And it takes about a year and it's a very interesting process. And again, nobody really like, I won't say nobody, but certainly this isn't a common discussion. No. Right. And nope. so the purpose of having you here is to make it a much more common discussion. Um, I was in a, I was in a class in undergrad many decades ago and I did a, <clears throat> I forget, it was a religious studies class and I did a um, segment on death and dying. And uh, I interviewed funeral directors. And I will tell you that in going through <laughs> going through a funeral home for the first time, and I'm like this 18-year-old kid, and uh, this funeral director was absolutely fine with me taking a, a tour. And he walks me into the parlor, and there's an open casket, and I freaked out because there's a person in there and it's like but the person's very 
basically uh, laid to rest, right? And it's it's like it's it's in a dignified way, and and it's one of those you come in contact with death and realize it is a thing. It just is a thing, and um, I, it's just interesting because we all approach it differently. It was, you know, the first time for me was a shock, and then after that, it's like, no, that's the realization. It is a thing, and it needs to be a part of a conversation, and not everybody needs to see their relative's body. That's not, that doesn't have to be a thing, right? Um other people want to. And so really between, uh, you know, celebrating the dash, I think is a big deal. How do you, how do you choose to celebrate end of life? How do you choose to celebrate life at the end of life? And, um, that's your work, which I think is fabulous. So what have been some of the more fun things that people can think about? You know, nobody thinks of death as fun, um you're all about celebrating the dash which is how do we really bring a life celebration to what uh at least in the united states we have this kind of uh assumption that funerals are sad right so how do we bring this celebration so that mourning is a is accepted and that's not necessarily the focus right the grief is real the loss is real and at the same time there's a lot to celebrate from the person you know that that's been with us so uh, how do you how do you manage that and how do you yeah like uh, i'll just let you answer that it's wide open i say i think for me because i have experienced so much life from a early i mean so much loss from an early age that i i realized at a certain point that you know people think they need to get over grief or get through grief and I'm like grief becomes a part of who you are it's it's how you handle it you know and, like for me, I could be perfectly fine one moment and hear a song on the radio that reminds me of my sister and my stepfather and you know, I break out crying. And that's just the reality of grief. It is always going to be a part of who you are. It's how you manage it for one or, or accept it. So that's why I chose to look at celebrations of life, you know, in funerals and focus on the person because I absolutely think every person is here for a reason and like your relationship with the person and how that person affected you could be completely different from, you know, your spouse or the child. And so it's focusing on who that person was to everybody, you know, what, what that special element was about them that I would say changes us. And that is that part that then becomes part of the grief process is, you know, they're always somewhere in you in your heart, you know, in your mind. So that's what I chose to focus on is the person's life, their legacy. It's so great. Yeah. I'm going to repeat back some of the things you said, because, um, because sometimes that just gets lost in the, in a conversation, right? Um, Managing loss. So bullet point, grief becomes a part of who you are. 
it's not about getting past it. It's not about getting over it. It's not about getting through it. It's about allowing it, right? And and not wallowing in it either. It's not like like there are some people that take it on and that becomes the entirety of who they are. Yeah. Um, it becomes a part of who you are. And um, grief storms are a thing. I learned about that when my mom passed. Um, when my mom passed, about two weeks after she passed away, um, I, was, I was picking out clothes for the morning. And it was a normal morning. And I was getting ready for work. And all of a sudden, in looking at a shirt... <clears throat> the shirt didn't trigger anything. It was just this sudden thing that was like mm. a flood, right? And it was, wow, it came over. And it's it, the when I learned the term grief storm, it was like, this makes so much sense. It's like this dark cloud flies over, rains, and flies off. And that's the way it felt. It was like, mm. I'm having a normal day. Whew, now it's not. Whew, now it's sunshine again. That's normal and eventually the grief goes um or transforms right because i still have you know, a place in my heart for my mom i have a place in my heart for my dad a uh, place in my heart for my sister like there's been loss in my life and um and you get through it by holding a special place for them, which leads to bullet point number two, which is focus on the person and their purpose for being here. And part two of that bullet point is, and the part of them that changes us. And that was profound because each of us is changed by someone in our lives and we're changed differently. We are affected by them differently. So um that's why i take notes when when i have <laughs> interviews this is this is great yeah. it gets lost right so yeah i've never heard the term grief storm but yeah that that's kind of explains what i said like when i'm perfectly fine and then i hear a song on the radio and i just ball my eyes out yeah. <laughs> yeah, i, I want to read something that i read the other day because i find it so profound Okay. about grief because i do think the sad thing and I, i'm going to say again like i think it's a very american way that we handle thing is that we carry grief around like luggage and it's not healthy and so i read this the other day and i said it's so beautiful and it says you've got to resurrect the deep who's pain. this from first oh gosh <laughs> let me i will try to pronounce her name it was a tweet aya ihima her her twitter handle is at Ehi Miora. It's it looks like an African um, name. Okay. Uh, but it says you got to resurrect the deep pain within you and give it a place to live that's not within your body. Let it live in art. Let it live in writing. Let it live in music. Let it be devoured by building brighter connections. Your body is not a coffin for pain to be buried in. Put it somewhere else. And that that like when I read that I was like that is exactly part of my message too. Is grief is so unhealthy to just carry around. And I mean, I read some sad things on social media of, of people just holding on to the pain. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Don't let the pain, like grief doesn't have to be painful. That's yeah. the other piece. Um, and that's, that's huge is that grief 
is it doesn't have to be painful. And I'm going to just make that note so I don't forget it because um, I want to make sure that's in my show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is a thing is that a lot of times it's almost like, um, you know, there are stages that we go through and right. Elizabeth Kubler Ross back in the late sixties identified the, the stages of grief and loss, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, denial is like, I'm just going to call so-and-so. Oh, they're not here. Like, you know, and then anger is why did they have to be that way? Why did she have to drink? Why did, uh, you know, and it could be anger at, at God. Why'd you take this person so soon? It could be anger itself. If only I had done something differently, which leads to bargaining, which is if only. And if you find yourself in this, if only space of, if only they had done something different, if only the doctors had caught it sooner, if only she didn't go out on that drive that evening, if only I had caught the symptoms sooner, if only that's the bargaining. And so denial, anger, bargaining, depression puts you in the space of just feeling deeply, deeply sad and not able to move. And, um, you know, nothing, things don't process the same. And, and that can take a couple hours to a couple days, to a couple weeks, to a couple months. Um, and, and it's, that's individual for everybody. And then there's this acceptance and the acceptance is not, and everything's great now they're gone. It's like, it's not jolly acceptance. It's an acceptance of the reality that this person is no longer in your life. Right. There are still times my dad passed in March. There's still times that it's like, oh, I've got this joke that I would have. And and it starts to be that I'd love to tell him. And then it's it's that I would have loved to have told him. Mm. Right. He was somebody who enjoyed humor and bad dad jokes and that kind of stuff. And, (laughs) And and it's just like that. The acceptance of I would have loved to have been able to share that with him. And I wonder who else I can share it with because, right, that's my humor too. So I love the idea that that grief doesn't have to be painful, that it is a process, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't belong living in your body, and that expressing it is huge. And that's actually one of the, the first times I've heard that is, you know, that grief doesn't have to live in your body. Yeah. Right. Love that love that um what else are you hoping to share or should you know do you think that that we were going to talk about and we need to talk about what else is what else is brewing uh, first of all, i want to say about that um elizabeth kubler ross the interesting thing about that is that study was actually done on the dying patients so all of those stages of grief actually yeah. were about the people that were dying, not those left behind. And it's gotten like transferred that it's about the people left behind. And I find that so interesting that it really does mirror. Like it does I come back, it mirrors. Yeah, yeah. yeah because uh, that that's absolutely accurate. And it mirrors those uh, left behind. And the uh, the studies that came from it actually go into anticipatory grief, 
where when you hear the news that somebody is ill and they it could be five years down the road you know there's a person that has a disease and it could take a long time the anticipatory grief uh it, the stages are identical and, yeah. right and it's like well this diagnosis can't be true right and it's very interesting, and I love that. It's it's absolutely right. The original studies were around those uh, basically diagnosed and in a space of of the death and dying yeah. uh, process, and that it does transfer to those losing. Because mm-hmm. think about this: when you've lost your car keys and you are running around frantically, it is like they were right here. Like it's the exact same (laughs) process, the denial. I had them. Where are they? Right. And, and then the anger of, all right, who took them, who took them? Like, did the dog do it? Did that? Right. Uh, And then it's bargaining. All right. If only I had a place for them, if I could hang them every single time, if only, and then uh, the depression, like, well, now I'm going to be late. (laughs) This is this. Now everything's going to be terrible because I, this one event has happened. And then it's like, all right, if I've lost my keys, there have to be a different, like there's somewhere else I need to be. I need to be doing other things. I need to be making calls to let people on my schedule know I'm going to be late. I need to do this. And you accept that this, this thing that you had is no longer there. Um, it's, it is identical. Now, the other part of this is that, uh, and this is where the studies take us to, is that it is cyclical. So it's not always linear denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. We're going to just get through it. It's like denial, anger, bargaining, anger, 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 bargaining, bargaining, depression, bargaining, depression. (laughs) It's like that. That is a thing as well. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that you brought it up, that it was originally done on uh, studies on those in the process of death and dying Mm -hmm. and um it does transfer and it does relate to any kind of loss right so yeah yeah cool i think one of the things i wanted to touch on was you brought it up earlier about how we have it's so ingrained in us that it's an urgent process and the only time it really needs to be done within the seven to 10 days is if there is a body being buried. Otherwise there is no urgency that has to be done. I mean, other than a home funeral as well, if you want to have the body laid out that and the um, it's becoming more widely known, but it's still worth saying is that nine times out of 10, you do not need to embalm a body. That's just an extra expense. And that's a purely American thing. I learned from my sister. (laughs) So, Yeah. Yeah, um, I just said myths out there. I love myth busting. Like yeah. that kind of stuff is huge. That you don't have to embalm a body, and it's bad for the, it's bad for the earth. You know, yeah. it's like, well, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's like it's. It, it, it's not like the body is going to be on display somewhere. Yeah. You know, dig it up, dig up this body of this person that you knew, and in twenty years. It's like, no. Right. You only need it if you are going to have an extended viewing time. And even then, like my sister said something to me in my podcast I did with her about what you said when you approached that that first body you saw in the casket. Like, oh, they're so, and I wanted to say dead. 
And she's like, exactly, right? We don't want them to look dead, so we embalm them. Yeah. 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 It did have a scientific basis behind it back in the Civil War, so that's where it started. But yeah, now, (laughs) like now we don't need it. Yes. So what else are there? Are there parting comments that you, you know, you you would love our viewing and listening audience to really take away? These are the like, just understand this. I just want people to know that however they are in life, they can be remembered in death. And there are so many resources out there that they you know, can look towards, like I said, there's some listed on my website. Um, I mean, just things like knowing that you can go up in fireworks if you want, you know, your body, your cremains can go up in fireworks. They can be buried in this beautiful underwater tomb off of Florida. They can go up in space. I'm like, there's so much out there that we do not have to be limited to what funeral homes kind of dictate to us as the only way for us to grieve. We all have a different spiritual basis, religious beliefs, everything. And I think that we should honor them in our own way, you know? So I think that's awesome. I'd never heard about the, uh, the fireworks as a, yeah. as a possibility. <laughs> and, um, I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boom. I know. Like once you realize all the choices, then you start going, Oh gosh, how do I want to be remembered? And that's the, that's the thing I want people to do is pre-plan. Like I said, I've got workbooks available that help with that pre-plan. Um, because when it does come down to it, when you just leave it up to loved ones to do it, an executor or a family member, they're going to be grieving. So that's why you get these rote, kind of celebrate our funerals really um, because who is in that mindset to be planning something so thorough? Like I said, I'm an event planner. That's my background. And that was the thing that the kind of the gift I brought to my sister's funeral was I have that thinking capability of being an event planner. The rest of my family did not, you know, they were in the grief. They did help make make selections and everything, but just the like I said, the questions to ask. So plan, plan, plan. That's that's awesome, yeah. right? So plan, plan, plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I talk about is is you know you're not the same person you were 20 years ago. You are at a point in your life where uh, pretty much 100 percent of us are in some form of personal transition personal, professional, financial, spiritual relationship, there's some kind of transition. And we plan our vacations in more detail than we plan who we want to become in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. But I think also on top of that is not only who do you want to become and can you plan to live into that, but also who do you want to be remembered for? Who do you want to be remembered as? And, and plan that so that the people that are around you understand that. One of the things I talk about in leadership is understand your values and have clarity. And it's one thing for you to have clarity, but it's another thing then to communicate those values. And this translates perfectly to this subject of uh, kind of end of life celebration. So, so... Felicia Barlow Clark, thank you for being with me. Um, really, really appreciate it. 
I will say the name of your website, or if you would like to say the name of your website one more time. It is celebratingthedash.com. Celebratingthedash.com. <laughs> All right. Lots of workbooks, lots of uh, great information there. Felicia, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Very interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Very. Yeah. This is One Sharp Sword Cutting Through to What Matters Most. I've had with me Felicia barlow Clark, and I am Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, your Breakthrough Success Coach. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most without Fluxer, Dr. Wayne Purnell. For more information, please go to onesharpsword.com.